I'm in a series on uh, 1 Samuel, and um, I had intended this morning to go and, and cover, tell the story all the way from chapter 8 through chapter 12, uh, but we would be here a little bit long if I did that, and so um, I'm narrowing it down just to chapters 8 through 10 uh, this morning, and I'll have to rewrite my whole plan for the summer. <laughs> so, um, but anyway... Uh, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, I'll have a lot of the scripture up on the screen. But we're just going to walk through the story there and then make some points as we get down towards the end uh, this morning. There have been between 20 and 25 years that have elapsed since chapter 7. And so you have this big gap of time in there, and, and then we start chapter 8. And um, Israel has lived for those 20, 25 years in relative peace. Um, Things have gone well under Samuel's leadership. And he's now closing in on the last years of his ministry. He continues to be the judge and the prophet all the way through the life of King Saul. So he's still got some time left in his ministry. But he's getting older in years. And new leaders have come on board in Israel. And they have some new ideas. And see, and they're willing to cast out some old convictions of Samuel and the way that Israel has uh, lived its lived its life. The interesting thing was that in the priesthood, that was automatic secession. All the priests of Israel were to come from the line of Aaron, and so you knew who was going to be the next priest after the priest died, and that was just automatically assumed. But in terms of the leadership of Israel, that was never assumed. There was no automatic secession when it came to the leaders of Israel. Moses had been called by God, and Moses had trained and worked with Joshua, but Joshua never did that. He never raised up another leader. And and so um, God would then, from that time on, raise up some judges from time to time when the Israelites actually um, cried out to God, then God would send them a leader. Remember that one of the last verses in Judges is this, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. And so it was just kind of expected that each tribe would seek the Lord um, because they were just, you know, as, as a nation, they were a theocracy. They were ruled by God, and they were to put their whole trust in God. And so that brings us to chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Samuel has appointed his sons to be judges, and they're serving, I think it is, in Beersheba. And, um, but the problem is, last week we talked about Eli's wicked sons. Samuel himself had two sons that became wicked also. And and they just did not follow in Eli's pathway uh, or in in his lifestyle. And so even though they were judges for Israel, they went after dishonest gain, um, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. And these are the spiritual leaders of Israel. (laughs) And and again, that was the, the problem that, you know, um, the reason Samuel came to power is because of Eli's sons. Well, the elders looked at that situation and they came to their own conclusion about what they should do. 
They did not pray. They did not talk to God. They didn't even consult Samuel. They just went and announced to Samuel what was going to be done. (laughs) And they wanted a strong central government with a king. And they argued on four different points. First of all, Samuel, you're getting old. Secondly, you haven't trained up anyone else to follow um, you and to replace you. Then they said, you know, your sons are just wicked. We don't want them as our leader. But the real reason behind it all was that they looked around at all the other nations and all the people that they fought with, the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites and all of those people, they had kings and they had military. And so they looked all around the nation of Israel at all the other nations and they said, we want to be like them. That was what was really driving this decision is to be like all the other nations And they wanted to be able to put their trust in a visible leader and in a visible military rather than an invisible God. Two questions I just want to throw out there, and we'll come back to this later. But number one, who are we raising up? Are we raising up godly leaders for tomorrow? And let me get more specific. Who are you raising up? Who are you investing on to create godly leaders for tomorrow? But then the second question is this. Are we putting our trust in earthly leaders when we haven't trusted our God? God wants us to step out in faith and put our faith in an invisible God and trust him. And it is really easy for us to want to put all of our trust in what we can see and feel and and touch. God wants us to go another direction. Then you get to these next verses in uh, verses 6 through 9. And... Samuel takes personal offense to their request. He feels like they have rejected his leadership as a judge. And so Samuel, he goes and he prays and he talks to God about it. And the Lord says to him, first of all, he says, the biggest issue here is not the rejection of you. The biggest issue, and sometimes, you know, the leader needs to hear that. (laughs) It's not you. It's not about you. It's about God. And he says, the biggest issue is that they have rejected me as their king. And then he went on to say, and not only have they done that, but that has been their history. (laughs) That has been their tradition. In other words, the nature of sin in us draws us away from serving God to serving other gods. In other words, they were in spiritual decay and either we're growing or we're dying spiritually. Either we are looking more towards God and trusting him or we're looking somewhere else. 
for leadership in our life. Then the interesting thing is that God tells Samuel, even though they're wrong, God tells Samuel to listen to them and give in to them. God could have simply refused. Samuel could have been belligerent and refused. But sometimes God gives us what we want, (laughs) even when it's not the best thing for us. (laughs) Sometimes God just gives us what we want. And then Samuel said, warn the Israelites solemnly what an earthly king will do. So he says, you know, go ahead, give them what they want, but warn them. And he does that, and I want you to see this this text, um, verses 10 through 18, it's going to be small print so you can't see it, but you can see uh, the green there. Six times in that passage, and he only uses this verb, and he uses the word, the king will take. Will take, will take, will take, will take. The king will take their sons in the military and political service. The king will take their daughters to serve in the palace. The king will take the best of their fields and vineyards for the palace and its attendants. He will take the best of their servants, their herds, their flocks for the palace. He will take a tenth of their flocks. He will take them as slaves. And Samuel begins to lay out the major difference between what they had, a theocracy and a monarchy, a big centralized government. And he says, God is a giver. Big government is a taker. And friends, I don't know how you look at that passage and see anything else. And then the Lord said to Samuel, and tell them that when they cry out because they don't like the results of big centralized government, when they cry out, tell them I will not listen to them. I just gave them what they wanted. (laughs) This was their choice, their doing. Verses 19 through 22, true enough, they were rejecting God. Again, they say, we want to be like everyone else. We want a king to fight our battles for us instead of God. (laughs) Now, I just want you to stop and think about that. Think back through Israel's history and some of the miraculous ways that God had fought battles for them. Think of the crossing of the Red Sea. Think of Aaron and Hur holding up the the hands of Moses and the the defeat of the Amalekites. Think of all those battles and all the times that those Israelites had witnessed God delivering them in all of their history. And they look back on that and say, yeah, we'd rather have a king lead our military. (laughs) We'd rather have a king fight our battles for us than God. Doesn't that sound absurd? (laughs) And yet, really, isn't that us? 
We want to be like everyone else and we don't ever consider how everyone else really lives and what their life is really like. We just want to be like everyone else around us. Peer pressure never ever dies. (laughs) We think it's a teen problem. It's not. Peer pressure is still there when you're 85. We want to be like everyone else. And we don't consider what everyone else really lives like. God's plan for Israel was to be distinctive. God's plan for Israel was to be very different from everyone else so that the rest of the world could look at Israel and say, they've got it right. And God's plan for you is not for you to fit in. God's plan for you is not to be like everyone else. God's plan for you is to be distinctive, to be set apart, to be people that the rest of the world can look at and say, those people know how to live. God does believe in free choice. He will let us choose. He will let us choose whether we want to be like everyone else or whether we are going to be the people that he created us and molded and shaped us to be. But God wants us to be distinctively different. Israel's sin was not so much that they asked for a king because that was part of God's plan long term. Their real sin was the timing of it. Their real sin was saying that they wanted a king now. God's plan was for the king to be from the tribe of Judah. We know that from earlier in the scripture. But David was not ready yet. And they wanted their king now. So God gave them a king from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Saul. He was impressive. He was a young man, he was strong. He was a head taller than everyone else. (laughs) And Saul was chosen by God to punish the nation of Israel somewhat for their choice, but also to prepare them for the king that God had chosen for them. There's a verse, couple verses in Hosea up on the screen. Hosea 13, 10 through 11, it says, Where is your king? This is written many, many years later. And God still remembers (laughs) this event where they asked for a king when he wasn't ready to give them one. He says, where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princesses? So in my anger, I gave you a king and in my wrath, I took him away. 
Again, sometimes God disciplines us by giving us exactly what we ask for. Saul was out at the time that God had chosen him looking for his father's lost donkeys. And when they couldn't find the donkeys, his servants said, well, there's a man of God somewhere over here. His name is Samuel. Um, We could go ask him. And uh, Saul said, well, you know, tradition is that you have to give him a gift. It's kind of like asking the preacher to marry you. You have to give him an honorarium. Something, you know. So anyway, um, Saul says, I I don't have anything. My bread is old and moldy and I, I don't have anything to give him. And the servant says, well, he said, I have something right here in my pocket. So he says, and Saul said, okay, that's good enough for me. Let's go find the man. And they went and they talked to some girls who, who told him uh, where, where they could find Samuel. And they went and uh, got directions. And, and uh, just as they were running into him, uh, you know, God had already prepared this. And God had already spoken to Samuel and, and um, told Samuel to anoint Saul when he, when he got to him as king, uh, and that he would use him to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. So when they come together, Samuel invites Saul to stay with him and tells him, you know, your father's donkeys have all been found and your your father is now more worried about you. Um, And then Samuel says these words to him. He says, the attention or the eyes of all Israel are upon you. Saul really didn't know what to do with that because he was a Benjamite. And if you go back into the history, you'll find that Benjamin had had made some grave mistakes and their tribe had pretty well been wiped out and they were weak and they were small and, and they were kind of a mess except for you know this big, strong, impressive, tall Saul. And Saul said, I'm, this, I'm from Benjamin, you know. You can't have a king from Benjamin. <laughs> he said, and I'm from the smallest clan, the weakest clan. You know, that, that can't be right. And so there is this sense of humility there. And yet there is no real indication in Saul's life that he has any spiritual maturity or real inclination there. He had this sense that he'd been picked out from the bottom of the pickle jar, um, you know, to, to be the king of Israel. Well, Samuel anoints Saul as king, and he tells him, these are the things that are going to happen to you on the way home. And he did that so that Saul would have verification, yes, this must be a God thing. Firstly, he says, you're going to meet two people at a certain place. And they are going to confirm to you that your donkeys have been found and that your father is worried about you. And, and indeed, that happens. And, and the point of all of that was for Saul to recognize that whatever problems he has, even if it's lost donkeys, God can handle it without him. <laughs> The next thing Samuel says is that you're going to come across three men later on who will give you two loaves of bread, two out of three that they're carrying with them. 
And he told them how to recognize him and all of that. He says, but they're going to give you two loaves of bread. And basically, if that happened, and basically God was saying to Saul, and, and God can provide for what you need to be king. And then lastly, at Gibeah, he would meet a procession of prophets playing instruments, all kinds of instruments, and they would be prophesied. And it says, and Samuel said, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you in power, and you are going to prophesy um, along with them. And then you will be, your heart will be changed. And basically God was saying, Saul, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, I can equip you. I can enable you to do what I want you to do. The last word Samuel spoke to Saul there was, Saul, do whatever your hands find to do. But wait until I get back to offer uh, a sacrifice, burnt offerings, and offer fellowship offerings. And it says Saul's heart was changed. And, and, and the interesting thing is we still don't really see a major change spiritually in him. So it, it's not like salvation or regeneration or some of those kind of things. We, we don't really see a shift from a secular viewpoint to a spiritual viewpoint. Saul never really, we never really see that in him. But there is this change in that he becomes equipped for leadership as the king of Israel. He has an aptitude, a capability, an attitude for leadership. And then everything Samuel foretold comes true. All those three things happen. Uh, his heart is changed. And, um, and then people are amazed. Is Saul among the prophets? Well, I think part of the reason for that is when God does a work in our life, he wants there to be witnesses of it. <laughs> he wants other people to be able to see that. Um, and so I think that's what the prophesying was about. But Paul, when he got home, his uncle asked him, well, what, what happened between you and Samuel? And Saul didn't tell him the whole truth. He just told him, well, he told me the donkeys had been found. <laughs> and that was about what um, he told his uncle. Samuel calls the nation of Israel together to appoint him, anoint him as king. Before he does that, he talks to all of them again, and he says, now this is a mistake, but we're doing this. We are anointing this man as your king, but you're not supposed to have a king. You're supposed to have God as your king. Samuel goes through all that again. And he tells the Israelites to present themselves before God, to receive their king after reminding them it's a mistake, and then they can't find Saul. He's hiding in the baggage. Just think of an airport terminal. He's down underneath, going round and round. <laughs> this is not, friends, him being humble. Humility is always obedient. Don't ever forget that. Humility is always obedient. You can be very humble, but true humility before God always says, God's will before mine. 
and it does not hide under the baggage. We sometimes think that humble people are just the meek people who just never get around to doing anything. Humility obeys God, even when it's not easy. Saul is not humble here. He's just scared. He's hiding in the baggage. And God is the one who announces, well, Saul is over there hiding in the baggage. (laughs) So they go get him, they bring him out, and um, Samuel then anoints him as king, and then he goes through this act of writing out the regulations of kingship for both the people and the king. He says, this is what a king is supposed to do. Saul, this is your job. And he says, people, this is your job. This is your responsibility to the king. And he does all of that. And then, very interestingly, and I think this has to do, again, with Saul's heart being changed for a while, because Saul starts out pretty good, and and he quickly descends and is not a great king for Israel, but he starts out wisely. It says, Saul, as a young king, he surrounded himself with valiant men whose hearts... God had touched. The other thing that happens there is there's some scoundrels, protesters, who refused to bring gifts to Saul. And when somebody became king, it was the tradition you brought gifts. And these scoundrels refused to bring gifts to Saul. And um, they, they just despised him. And they said, you know, how can this fellow save us and all of that? And the interesting thing is that Saul kept silent. He celebrated the good things of the day instead of focusing on those scoundrels. And he really starts off his ministry great. Now there are three things that I would like you to take away and if you take away something else, awesome. That's probably from God. But these three things I want you to know. First of all, God is a giver. (laughs) Big government is not. Big government is a taker. And the danger of big government is that it can be an idol that replaces God. And for way too many people in the United States of America, big government has replaced God. Be very, very careful that you do not allow big government to replace God and to be God for you. Second, being like everyone else is choosing to live beneath God's intended purpose for you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life that is way bigger and way better than living like everyone else around you. He has better things in store for you. Get rid of that carnal desire to be like everyone else. And then I want to say that God can handle your problems. He can provide for you. And he can equip you to do his will. And then there's two things that I want you to do. 
I want you to work on, pray through. But think about, who can you raise up? Who can you invest your life in to raise up godly leaders for tomorrow? And then we need to um, make God the real king of our life. We, we, We have to be done with... You know, wanting an earthly king to fight our battles for us. <laughs> we need to put our trust in him.